Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing to you the 2017 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of the 5th and 6th of August at the Water Poet in Fullgate Street and at the Curzon Cinema in Aldgate in the East End of London, England. The next speaker we are pleased to present is Richard Jones. Mr. Jones is a prolific author, television presenter, and blue badge guide whose company Discovery Tours conducts guided tours of historical sites all over London, including the acclaimed Jack the Ripper tour. Philip Hutchinson, one of his expert guides, was MC for the East End Conference, and so let's turn it over to him as he introduces Richard Jones and his talk entitled, Jack the Ripper and the Age of the Everyday Humble Hero. What it meant earlier on turns out it's been juxtaposed it should actually read the everyday humble hero in the age of jack the ripper which makes a great deal more sense when you find out what the next subject is going to be about uh, so our next speaker today is richard jones now this has nothing to do with the fact that he's my employer but some people would say that he is uh, a living god <laughs> i wouldn't say that i would say he was an omnipotent omnipresent immor- immortal god and although his guides haven't had a wage rise for about half a decade, he's, he's still, I think, what we, what we would call in the field a, a legend. And it's not often that term can be used appropriately, but I think on this occasion uh, it certainly is the case. And uh, Richard, I'm sure a lot of you are aware, started his Jack the Ripper company uh, starting in 1982. I believe it was the second one. It was the, there was it was the second one. It was only the one before. Right, yeah. We get this on the tours a lot. People say, are you the first one? No, no, the second one. Basically, it sounds more convincing. If you go, yeah, we're the first one, they think you're lying. You go, no, there's one that's older than us. All these others aren't. So, so yes, yeah, so the second one's up. 1982, Richard started doing it. He, he started, I'd say he started life as a postman, but that would actually infer that you did it from birth, which would be a very bizarre thing. <laughs> um, his job was a postman, and uh, his interest in, in the Ripper and the, and the locale all stemmed from that. And, uh, of course, with his job, Postman's Park, one of the, the definite hidden gems of London, if you've not been, or oh, you should go, you could easily wallow in 90 minutes in, in fascination at the site. Maybe not when it's pouring with rain, but a nice sunny day, it's definitely a place to visit. Uh, Richard is, of course, the author of, of two highly respected books on, on the Ripper. If you haven't got, uh, well, if you've got both of them, then well done. If you're missing either of them, you, you, you really do need to get them. Uh, one of them, of course, is, is the Jack the Ripper casebook, which is that wonderful folder with all the documents and things inside it. You very often see them on eBay. Someone's taken a, a document out from it as trying to sell it individually as being the original. Happens an awful lot. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, but Richard's very kindly come this afternoon to, to speak to all of you lovely delegates, and I'd like to introduce to you one of the greatest living human beings in the world. <laughs> I'm almost in tears. I, I have to sit down. I forgot to sit down anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Jones. Uh, well, thank you, Philip, for that wonderful uh, introduction. Now, can I just say, austerity is awful. But... <laughs> But it will pass, Teresa told me. Uh, are you all enjoying yourselves? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm here to change that. So, <laughs> what I'm going to talk about this afternoon is, uh, as I say, I, I have to take full responsibility for you for, from uh, jumbling the title up there. That was uh, me completely who jumbled it up. But it's the everyday humble hero in the age of Jack the Ripper. Uh, because I've always seen the, the age of the Ripper as being an age when things began to change. Uh, it was an area where, uh, to quote David Bowie, we can all be heroes, we can be heroes. Uh, maybe a bit long for just for one day. But um, it was the age of the everyday humble hero. But virtually everybody at the time was striving to become a hero. Uh, for example, from about the 1870s right through to the early 20th century, you start to get things where ordinary detectives start to see themselves as heroes. You get this wonderful um, um, and, um, uh, series of detective memoirs coming out where detectives are actually seeing themselves as, uh, and of course changing things to make themselves more, look more heroic. Uh, and perhaps some of the more famous examples of this are Anderson and uh, his memoirs uh, and uh, various other ones as well. But it was the age of another type of hero as well. And that's what I want to uh, cover in my talk this afternoon. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm a bit late starting. Am I all right to go on for 45 minutes, Adam, or? 
join me to finish up? Yeah, so as I say, I'm 15 minutes late, such a long introduction, such a, such a, you know, sort of a <laughs> groveling, brown-nosing introduction. It, 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 sort of, it, it, ate, it ate into my time. But, uh, so um, that's what I want to talk about this afternoon. And I just want to start by saying, uh, is John Bennett here yet? All right, well, not to worry. Uh, because uh, I want to start by saying that, that, that as Philip said, uh, there's a tranquil garden that's a stone throw away from St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you've never been to this garden, I would urge you to go to this garden. In fact, what I would do is when I finish this talk, it's only two stops on the central line, so just completely blank the next speaker and just head off to <laughs> Postman's Park and have a look at it. But in this tranquil garden, I'd say it's a stone's way, uh, throw away from St. Paul's Cathedral, there's a remarkable structure. And on the walls of that structure, you'll see a series of ceramic tiles on which are remembered long ago acts of heroic self-sacrifice by ordinary men, women, and children. And what I'm going to do now is uh, just get the first slide up. Can I just apologize to everyone? I'm going to point in that direction. Uh, if I hit the wrong button and hit the laser, can I just apologize for any damage, <laughs> uh, any damage that I might do here? But uh, here we go, here we go. So uh, the, the wall in question, I'll just step out here. Can everyone hear me all right if I speak at this volume? Uh, it's this little structure that's just over here. And that is the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice. And that's the memorial uh, that was the idea of uh, a remarkable Victorian, a man by the name of George Frederick Watts. And George Frederick Watts is often referred to as England's Michelangelo. In fact, uh, George Frederick Watts has several distinctions. Uh, in fact, if you go to St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, a stone throw from Postman's Park, you can see some examples of his work on the murals inside St. Paul's Cathedral. But the, um, the monument's been described as the people's Westminster Abbey. And there's a small statuette at the center of that monument. I'm just going to try this again. Uh, uh, there's a side view of it. But, uh, and that's the uh, heroic self-sacrifice bit of it. But at the center of it, there's a small statuette, which I'll come to any moment now. If I did have to happen at that time. But there, there's a small statuette of this man here. This is George Frederick Watts. And uh, the statue... <laughs> I love it. It's racing ahead. Uh, anyway, just take it from me. There's a statuette at the centre of there of a man who's got a, a long beard uh, and a gown, and that man is uh, just hit the, 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 the that man is George Frederick Watts. There he is there. Uh, so the man in question is George Frederick Watts, and uh, Watts conceived that uh, that idea for that memorial in the 1860s. But his his idea met with an awful lot and an awful lack of interest. Uh, but what I want to do is go back to uh, the 1850s and the 1860s and actually start with what lay behind the founding of that memorial. Uh, and it could be argued that the age of the humble everyday hero began in the 1850s. Now I'm not saying that the acts of heroism didn't exist before this decade, rather it was that in this decade that society at large began to take notice of heroic acts by ordinary everyday people. And two events were pivotal in this happening. Uh, the first event was the Crimean War, which began in 1853 and ended in 1856. And the war saw the birth of a new type of journalist, the war correspondent, of whom the pioneering figure was William Howard Russell of the Times. Uh, reporting from the war, the readers back uh, uh, to readers back home on the events such as the thin red line at Balaclava and the charge of the Light Brigade, Russell was able to arouse middle class indignation at the ineptness of the handling of the war, which in turn led to demands for military and administrative reform. The other, and in many ways more significant event uh, behind it, was the abolition of the newspaper stamp duty, which came into force on the 29th of June, 1855. And this meant that the cost of newspapers came dramatically down, making them affordable for the literate and semi-literate workers, working classes, which in turn led to the appearance of a plethora of new papers, all of which had to compete for readers. This, inspired, this uh, removal of stamp duty, incidentally, uh, inspired uh, Mr. B. Hyam, a Manchester tailor and cap maker, to compose a poem which was duly published in his new affordable local paper on the 30th of June, 1855. And the poem uh, opened thus. Today the press from duty free appears on every side, whilst competition reigns around and news is scattered wide. A perfect flood of papers rise like breakers in the storm of every size and every price and every make and form. Now, notwithstanding his uh, 
Too soon, eh? uh, not, notwithstanding uh, Mr. Hyam's poetic brilliance, the competition amongst newspapers was fierce, and it wasn't long before they discovered a fact that newspapers have adhered to ever since, and still adhere to to this day, sensationalism sells. And this will become particularly noticeable during the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888. But crime reporting then became very popular, and the more gruesome or dramatic the case was, the more sales could be expected. But also, they wanted to uh, portray uh, acts of heroism, uh, acts of bravado, and that could be used to sell as well. But at the same time, another form of reporting came into vogue in the 1860s, and this one would increase in popularity throughout the next uh, 40 or so years of the 19th century, and it would continue unabated into the early years of the 20th century. On the 7th of, uh, 7th of February, 1865, a new newspaper hit the newsstands, the Pall Mall Gazette. It was founded by George Murray Smith, and its first editor was Frederick Greenwood. Initially, the Gazette was very much a journal for gentlemen, and in fact, it was pitched very much at a conservative audience, a fact which it was emphatic about in a mission statement in its first edition. And that statement read, we address ourselves to the higher circles of society. We care not to disown it. The Pall Mall Gazette is written by gentlemen for gentlemen. Its conductors speak to the classes in which they live and were born. The field preacher has his journal. The radical free thinker has his journal. Why should the gentlemen of England be unrepresented? in the press. And so that was the birth of the Pall Mall Gazette. Uh, there came a change of ownership incidentally in 1880 and that would lead it to be uh, to change its stance and begin supporting the policies of the Liberal Party and that led to the resignation of Greenwood uh, and he would be replaced by uh, William Thomas Stead uh, who of course uh, became very famous in the 1880s. However in its early incarnation the paper was aimed directly at gentlemen or at least wannabe gentlemen and in consequence it tried to come up with stories that would appeal to this readership. Even in its early days, the Gazette was not above pulling the type of stunt that Stead would later become famous for. In 1866, Frederick Greenwood persuaded his brother James to undertake research for a new story on the poor of London. The resultant article would give birth to a new style of journalism that would see more and more articles appearing on the poor of London and other major cities around London, about the poor of London and other major cities around London. Now, it must be said, that reporting on the everyday lives of the poor was not new. Charles Dickens had done it, Henry Mayhew, Dickens' great friend and co-participator in his amateur theatricals had done it uh, with his monumental study, London Labour and the London Poor, which was published first in 1851. But Dickens and Mayhew and other writers who had investigated the everyday lives of the poor had simply gone out and interviewed them and then published their resultant interviews, but their accounts of the poor maintained a strong sense of Victorian propriety. Unpleasant issues were either glossed over or else not mentioned, and poetic euphemisms were employed to enable the genteel readers to read about the everyday horrors the poor had to face without having to actually confront them head on. What the Greenwoods did was radically different. James disguised himself as a vagrant and checked in to spend a night in Lambeth Workhouse as one of the inmates. The subsequent article, published in 1866 as A Night in the Workhouse, caused an absolute sensation, confronting the reader in vivid and horrific detail with what went on behind the walls of a workhouse. People, stripped, people were stripped of their possessions, forced to bathe in water that had been used so many times that it had the consistency of a thick soup. In one stomach-churning passage, Greenwood wrote how the mattress of the bed he was given was soaked in the blood of the previous inhabitant. On reporting the fact to the keeper, he received the sage advice, oh, just flip it over and you'll be all right. Uh, so Greenwood's article gave birth to this new style of investigative uh, reporter, one who would not only report on the conditions of the poor, but who would also go out and become one of the poor. The style of reporting soon gained popularity, and by the 1880s there were so many journalists posing as down-and-outs whilst researching articles that you can't help but feel that the one reason the poor couldn't get into the casual wards and the workhouses <laughs> was because so many journalists had got there first. Uh, nowadays, the most famous example of this type of journalism is Jack London's The People of the Abyss. Uh, but it should be remembered that London was at the end of a long queue of reporters who had been queuing up to join the poor of London since the 1860s. 
The Greenwood's pioneering article had two immediate effects. Firstly, they sold copies of the Gazette and discovered this sort of thing could sell. Secondly, they gave the affluent classes an interest in the lives of the poor. And as more and more newspapers began reporting on conditions in the slums, the middle and upper classes were suddenly confronted by a malcontent underclass that at any moment might rise up in revolution and, to quote Margaret Harkness, might walk westwards, cutting throats and hurling brickbats until they were shot down by the military. Thus did the uh, affluent classes come to look on the working classes as a threat to ordinary society. And by the 1880s, the lower classes were often being referred to as savages. And we start to see articles that speak of missionaries being sent into, uh, uh, to convert people in slums, uh, people dwelling on the doorsteps of what was effectively the wealthiest square mile on earth. Uh, there were even slum tours on which uh, wealthy Londoners could board an omnibus and head east to spend a morning or an afternoon viewing the slum dweller in his or her natural habitat. I mean, perish the thought, anyone offering tours of the residents and the streets of a crime-ridden east end of London, it's just beyond the pale, if you ask me. <laughs> Convinced that some pearl of goodness must lie within the rough exterior of the lower classes, certain individuals began casting around in search of a noble savage, and failing that noble acts that demonstrated that the ordinary working man, woman or child could, when the need arose, demonstrate an ability to rise to the challenge, and in terms of courage at least, show themselves to be the equal of their socially superior city co-inhabitants. Thus was born the era of the humble, everyday hero. To trace the development of the concept of everyday heroism, we need to return to the Crimean War, or at least its aftermath. In 1854, the Liberal MP, Austin Leonard had observed to Parliament how, on his recent return aboard a troop ship from the Crimean War, he had noticed that whereas French soldiers were proudly dis uh, displaying their medals on their chests, the British soldiers had no equivalent award to take pride in. His observation set in motion the establishment in 1856 of what would become known, or what become known, sorry, as the Victoria Cross, which, although a military award, would nonetheless and for the first time recognise acts of bravery by all soldiers, irrespective of their class or their rank. Ten years later, in 1866, the authorities introduced the Albert Medal, initially reserved for those who had tried to save the lives during shipwrecks or other people in peril at sea. The third, first recipient of this new medal was a Devonshire farmer by the name of Samuel Popplestone, who on the night of the 23rd of March 1866 had gone to the rescue of four sailors who had managed to survive the wrecking of their cargo ship, the Spirit of the Ocean. The heroism he had demonstrated in clambering over the storm-tossed rocks to reach uh, the survivors and bring them ashore was applauded in the press, and he was rewarded by being the first recipient of a new award for civilian bravery, the Albert Medal. Now, it must be said that the motivation for this new award did uh, serve a desire by the authorities to encourage loyalty, as well as to placate a citizenry, citizenry that was beginning to bare their teeth. The government believed that by recognizing acts of bravery amongst ordinary people, they would encourage people to emulate them. And in so doing, acts of everyday heroism could be seen to represent an individual's allegiance to the crown and the nation, similar to the acts of military heroism. But it was also around this time that the man who, as far as posterity is concerned, at least, would do more to ensure that some of the everyday heroes would never be forgotten than any other Victorian, began taking interest in humble heroism. And his name was George Frederick Watts. In the mid-1860s, just going to change the slide now, so you can... You can in the mid-1860s, uh, George Frederick Watts had begun to contemplate the concept of destiny and its manifestations in everyday life, and he'd been particularly inspired by a passage in George Eliot, this is George Eliot here, in George Eliot's novel, Felix Holt, which had been published in 1866. Uh, the, the passage in question read, for what we call illusions are often in truth a wider vision of past and present realities, a willing movement of a man's soul with the larger sweep of the world's forces, a movement towards a more assured end than the chances of a single life. We see human heroism broken into units and say, this unit did little, might as well not have been. But in this way, we might break up a great army into units. In this way, we might break the sunlight into fragments and think that this and the other might be cheaply parted with. 
Let us rather raise a monument to the soldiers whose brave hearts only kept the ranks unbroken and met death. A monument to the faithful who were not famous and who are precious as the, uh, as, sorry, as precious as the continuity of the sunbeams is precious, though some of them fall unseen and on barrenness. George, Watts, uh, George Eliot's words started Watts thinking uh, about the possibility of using multiple individual commemorations to deliver a single generic message. Uh, and in a bid to secure uh, sponsorship, he outlined his idea in a letter to one of his patrons, a man called Charles Rickards. Rickards, however, remained indifferent to it. And this was something that Watts was going to face over the next few years, total uh, indifference to it. And Watts kept the idea, and in 1887, Queen Victoria celebrated her Golden Jubilee. And Watts wrote a letter to the Times. And in that letter, entitled Another Jubilee Suggestion, he actually uh, made a point. And that point was that the character of a nation as a people of great deeds is one, it appears to me, that should not be lost sight of. It must surely be a matter of regret when names worthy to be remembered and stories stimulating and instructive are allowed to be forgotten. It is not too much to say that the history of Her Majesty's reign would gain a luster were the nation to erect a monument, say here in London, to record the names of these likely to be forgotten heroes. I cannot but believe a general response would be to such a uh, sorry, the general response would be made to such a suggestion. An intelligent consideration and artistic power might combine to make London richer by a work that is beautiful and our nation richer by a record that is inf infinitely honourable. Uh, and then he goes on to say something in this letter, which is actually quoted on the monument itself. The material prosperity of a nation is not an abiding possession. The deeds of its people are. And that became his, uh, his guiding light over the next few years. And to drive home his point, Watts used a recent example of heroic self-sacrifice that had truly captured the public imagination. And that... And that... Uh, that example that he used was the, uh, the case of Alice Ayres. Uh, now, Alice Ayres is perhaps the most famous of these uh, plaques in here, uh, most notably because she appears um, uh, in the film, both the, uh, the film and the play Closer. Uh, there's actually a scene filmed alongside this plaque where Natalie Portman and Jude Law are standing there. Natalie Portman's character wants to take uh, an alias, and she takes the alias of Alice Ayres. But Alice Ayres was a, a true heroine of the 1880s. As it says there, daughter of a bricklayer's labourer who by intrepid conduct saved three people from a burning house in Union Street Borough at the cost of her own young life. And it was a story that people found truly inspiring. Her brother actually owned a painter's shop on, uh, at the junction of Gravel Lane and Union Street in Borough. And the paint shop one night caught fire. And with the flames raging, the crowds came out to see if they could help. And as they were watching the burning building, there appeared at the upstairs window a young girl, which was Alice Ayres, and she was clutching a feather mattress. And she screamed at the crowd to catch the mattress. So she dropped the feather mattress down to the crowd, who then took hold of the mattress, uh, and they presumed Alice Ayres was about to jump. But Alice Ayres went back into the blazing building, and a few moments later she came out clutching a child, one of her, th her three nieces, uh, and she dropped that child down into the feather mattress below. And the crowd now implored her to jump, but Alice Ayres refused. She went back into the blazing building, and a few moments later came out with a second child, which again she dropped down into the, into the feather mattress. Uh, and now the crowd, with the building completely ablaze, just implored her to jump. But Alice Ayres refused for a third time, went back into the building, and appeared with another child, which again was dropped down into the mattress below. Alice then went to scramble out of the window, but in <coughs> so doing she was overcome by the fumes and she fell and she missed the mattress uh, and she died of her injuries in uh, well some reports say uh, Guy's Hospital some reports say St Thomas's Hospital but uh, she died uh, she died of her injuries now Alice Ayres became a massively inspirational figure of the late 1880s. Uh, they produced tea cloths showing the image of the girl in the window. They, uh, they produced a biscuit tin showing her at the blazing window. Uh, some of you actually might have seen some of these images. Uh, they, they, oh, wrong one. Uh, some of these images. But uh, and this is this is it, so the Alice Ayres shown here. Uh, she was a girl of 26 years old, and her funeral uh, took place. Uh, in Isleworth, her, her parents actually lived in Isleworth, and a funeral was like the funeral of a statesman, and together people combined to pay for a memorial to her. I'm trying to get that memorial up now. It still stands in Isleworth Cemetery. Uh, it seems to have disappeared. <laughs> uh, 
but the memorial is an obelisk, and it's a huge memorial. Uh, this is incidentally the fire that cost Alisaias her life. This is how the newspapers depicted uh, that fire. Uh, I don't want to go too soon because he seems to be delaying here. There's, so this, this is Alisaias's memorial in Isleworld Cemetery, uh, and you can see it's, it's the, the large uh, obelisk in the centre. Uh, and a funeral was almost a, a national, nationally reported on the newspapers. They had 20 school children from the local school line up, and uh, they were going to accompany it to the grave. But on the day of the funeral, uh, there was a terrific hailstorm, and the children didn't sing at the grave as had been anticipated. But a huge uh, procession actually followed it to the graveside and watched a coffin as it was lowered down into the grave. And what the point Watts made was that if society cannot remember a sacrifice such as that made by Alice Ayres, then society can never legitimately call itself a civilized society. Uh, and his point took home with everybody except with officialdom. And again, his jubilee idea was completely rejected. And But the point was it had caught the attention of the press. And over the next 10 years, uh, Watts was actually interviewed numerous times, notably by the Pall Mall Gazette. Uh, he did lots of interviews with the Pall Mall Gazette, talking about his idea to have this uh, memorial to heroic self-sacrifice put up in London. And in fact, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Pall Mall Gazette had actually already uh, given an idea of the heroism of Alice Ayres. Uh, in its edition of the 25th of April, 1885, it published the following article. The servant girl, Alice Ayres, who saved the lives of three children in the fire in the borough yesterday, has added another story to the book of golden deeds. It is no sentimental exaggeration to say that this latest tale of female heroism has never been surpassed by those which have come before. That wives and mothers are capable of heroism now, worthy to stand beside that of Elsetsis, and to make sacrifices the more difficult because the less conspicuous we all know. But the heroism of Alice Ayres was greater still, for it can have been inspired by nothing else than sheer bravery and duty. And this became the, uh, the, 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 the mantra that Watts began to chant in all his other, um, all his other interviews over the next few years. Now, as I say, he's, he's, he did meet with a complete indifference, but thanks to press pressure, the interest continued throughout the 1890s. And in 1898, Watts was approached by the Reverend Gamble, the vicar of St. Botolph's Church, Aldersgate, in the city of London, who offered him a site for his memorial in the newly extended Postman's Park alongside his church. Watts accepted the offer and agreed to fund the uh, construction of the memorial and the creation of the tiles. He continued to speak to the papers about his idea. So, for example, he told, uh, or oh, he gave an update to the Northern Whig uh, when he provided further details of the intended scheme in its edition of the 10th of October, 1898. And it went, goes on to say, the scheme is like Mr. Watts himself, modest and simple and sincere. There will be no art in it and no glory. It is not an artist that he suggests, as an artist that he suggested, but as an Englishman. The heroic deeds that are constantly coming before the public eye, he said, implying the sacrifice of life to save others, seem to me to constitute a grand and honourable feature of the national character. It is a great pity that they should only receive the recognition of a newspaper paragraph and be forgotten the next day. What I want is to establish a permanent memorial of them, which all who go may, all who go to see by who will go to see it may read. A chance has now arisen for at least making a commencement. Mr. Gamble, the incumbent of St. Botolph's, has given me an opportunity of starting the memorial in his churchyard. A lady has undertaken to look up the cases for me in the files at the British Museum, and the memorials will be so simple that there will be no difficulty in recording them all, as simple as the impulse which led to the deed. No busts, no pictures, merely a tablet, the date, the name, and the event. And the scheme will not include heroes of war, or of the battlefield, or of the warship. Honour is done already to the heroes of these services. I want to honour, I want honour to be done to those equally brave who neither expect it nor get it. I think the scheme must be confined to those whose effort is followed by the loss of life, for after all, it is a memorial. There are a few preparations to make, but I hope to begin work very soon. The great thing is, it is to begin. And in fact, uh, it was begun. Over the next few years, the memorial was erected. And on the 30th of July, 1900, they opened Postman's Park. And on that very same afternoon, they, uh, they unveiled the monument to heroic self-sacrifice with four plaques. Uh, strangely, for some reason, Alice Ayres was intended to be the first plaque, but for some reason, she wasn't. The first one was actually a chap called uh, Frederick Alfred Kraft, 
who some of you, if you've been to Boseman's Park, might recall him. Uh, he's actually given us Croft on the memorial, but his name was Kraft, who uh, in a wonderfully un-PC description on the plaque, it states, uh, oh, there's Alice says again, on a wonderfully un-PC uh, bit on his plaque, it says he saved the life of a lunatic woman at Woolwich Arsenal Station, uh, and in uh, so doing, was run over by the train himself. Uh, I, I won't go into too much detail about craft because I'm, I'm running out of time, but uh, I, I want to go uh, to, uh, what I want to do now is just go through a few of the memorials uh, that are in there because it, it is a wonderful place. And uh, again, I would say if you haven't been there, uh, then but, you know, do, do go there. Uh, you know, make, make sure that you know, you, you two, two stops, as I say, on the underground. Just completely blank the next speaker and because uh, I see he's just arrived <laughs> and, uh, and make your way over there. But the first one, uh, they go in chronological order. What's noticeable about the majority of them is that they, uh, the majority take place in the late 19th century. Watts's one abiding thing was he wants to be Victorian. Now, it was continued on into the 20th century. Most notably, it was continued in the advent of the Second World War, was then rested in the 1930s when Watts's widow Mary died, uh, and was taken up again in 2009 when a memorial was put up to Lee Pitt, who uh, had worked for Merrill Lynch, which oversees, uh, overlooks Postman's Park, uh, and he'd saved the young boy's life at, uh, at Thamesmead Estate. Uh, and he was, uh, he, his fiance, Hannah Shah, actually approached the Diocese of London, who now maintain that memorial, and asked if Lee could be remembered. So there is actually, a, it's towards the left as you, as you approach it. It's a memorial to Lee Pitt, reprographic operator. But it's done in the same style of them all. But the oldest chronologically is this lady here, Sarah Smith, whose occupation is wonderfully given as pantomime artiste. And uh, at the Prince's Theatre, she died of terrible injuries received when an, an attempting in her inflammable dress to to extinguish the flames which had enveloped her companion. In fact, she was a ballet dancer. It was actually the Princess's Theatre on Oxford Street, and she was in the pantomime uh, in, a, in early, um, early 1863. And uh, there, was a step, there was a scene in the pantomime where the dancers were to twirl across the stage, and they would have fireworks go off, which would illuminate them in blue, and uh, blue red, and green flame. And as one of the uh, ballet dancers, Anne Hunt, was going past, uh, she caught one of the flames and her dress just went up in flames. Now in fact this is wrong because Sarah Smith didn't go to her assistance uh, and in fact Sarah Smith wasn't actually her name. Sarah Smith was a tr uh, stage name. Her actual name was Sarah Gibson. Uh, but uh, what happened was that Anne Hunt panicked when her dress caught fire and she raced off the stage and in so doing she raced past Sarah, uh, Sarah Gibson or Sarah Smith and her dress then set fire to Sarah Gibson's dress. The hero of the moment wasn't actually Sarah. It was the stage manager who raced on with his Inverness cape and managed to throw the cape around Anne Hunt, uh, got the flames out on Anne Hunt, but then tried to do it with Sarah, but it was too late. Uh, Sarah actually lingered for several days, and we start to see uh, in this uh, that the press starts picking up on it, and they're giving daily bulletins in their editions of uh, the state of Sarah, of Sarah Smith or Sarah Gibson, as they refer to her in the press. Uh, but inevitably she died, and she became one of the first reported ones on. What was it? Oh, she's the oldest chronologically on the memorial. What's interesting about her is that she starts something that crops up time and time again on the memorials, and that is that there's a lot of inaccuracy on them. Watts didn't fact check. Fact check. He had the lady in the library, and she was simply going through the newspapers at the British, uh, what British Museum, but the British Library, uh, which is where it then was. So she was simply going through newspapers and simply cutting out pre or getting press clippings, sending them to Watts, who would then think, well, we'll have that one, we'll have that one, and he was just going by what he thought was the best and most artistic act of sacrifice. So I say it wasn't uh, fact-checked as such, uh, and that's why we get this uh, misunderstanding. But we get it on a few of the plaques as well. Some of the plaques, though, are... Uh, I don't want to go too far on this. There we go. Some of the plaques, though, are, 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 are true, and some of them are actually quite interesting. Uh, for, for other reasons as well. Uh, one of them is this one here. This is to John Clinton. Uh, there's a lot of plaques to children uh, on, on the memorial. Uh, and in fact, uh, John Clinton was uh, known as the boy hero. He's actually buried in, um, in the same cemetery, in, in Manor Park Cemetery. So he's actually buried in the same cemetery that Annie Chapman's uh, memorial plaque in is. If you actually go into that cemetery and walk uh, towards the chapel, uh, you'll see his memorial uh, on the left-hand side. Let me just see if I can get, get to his memorial here. Uh, that's his act of sacrifice, but uh, 
That's his memorial. You'll see it on the left of the, 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 the first intersecting paths as you go up. It's on the left. Uh, and you see it. It's a memory of John Clinton, the little hero. Uh, he really did capture the public imagination, not just because of his act of sacrifice. Uh, what happened was he was down by London Bridge, and uh, one of his playmates fell into the River Thames. Uh, and the playmate bobbed up, and then John Clinton simply leapt in and tried to save his mate um, and bring him out. Uh, and John Clinton died in the process. But when the inquest was being reported on in the newspapers, they picked up on something that his father mentioned at the in inquest, and that was that John Clinton had always been something of a hero. In fact, he brought up the case of a few uh, years ago, uh, the curtains in their house had caught fire when the little baby sister was in the room, and John Clinton, without even thinking about it, had raced into the room, pulled the curtains down, uh, almost setting fire to himself in the process, and had saved the life of his little sister. So as I say, John Clinton uh, was, uh, I say, the, the, the little boy hero, and the press really did go to town on his act of heroic self-sacrifice, which you... I'll just try and go back on it here. Uh, the, these, are the these are the press reports or the press illustrations. Uh, and it's interesting in virtually all the illustrations, if you actually look at how that illustration is structured, uh, yes, look at the images, but just look at the shape that the images are in. They're in the shape of a heart or they're, they're, they're framed by a heart. Uh, so that was uh, how the press came to see John Clinton. And his funeral was actually attended by, um, by, by his schoolmates. A lot of tears at the graveside. But as I say, he was a little boy hero. And if you ever do go to Manor Park uh, to view Annie Chapman's uh, uh, grave, I would uh, strongly recommend making the detour to have a look at his grave as well. But, uh, oh, that, that's, that's the image of him that appears. I don't know if you can all see that if it's too, uh, it's very, very uh, faded now. But that's the image of John Clinton that appears on his gravestone uh, in Manor Park Cemetery. I don't know if everyone can see that. Uh, but the next one I want to move on to is this one here. And I want to move on to him for a very good reason. Uh, G. Garnish, as you see, a young clergyman who lost his life in endeavouring to rescue a stranger from drowning at Putney on January the 7th, 1885. Uh, and I just want to read you the newspaper article uh, about, about his demise. Uh, because it's actually quite, quite an interesting uh, little thing. Uh, it, it, it is an incredible act of self-sacrifice. Uh, boating accident on the Thames, two persons drowned is how it was reported. Uh, and uh, we get, for example, this is the report in the Aberdeen Evening Express. Yesterday afternoon, a boating accident occurred on the Thames near Putney by which two gentlemen lost their lives and several other persons had narrow escapes. The misadventure was occasioned by two boats coming into violent collision, which resulted in the small one of the two capsizing and its occupants being precipitated into the water. There were five persons in the boat, which was overturned, three of whom were excellent swimmers. Of the remaining two, one could swim indifferently and the other not at all. One of the occupants of the other boat, seeing Mr. E. Mackenzie of the Lobham of, of Twickenham struggling in the water and apparently sinking, sprang overboard to his assistance. The unfortunate victim of the accident, however, seized him by the neck in such a manner as to cause them both to sink before assistance could be rendered them from another source. Every effort was made to save them by the persons in the boat which had, uh, which had caused the catastrophe, but without avail. The other victim of this mishap was a young curate, the Reverend G. Garnish, who had only recently been ordained. And then it goes on to say, uh, we, we get one from the uh, Palmer Gazette, which uh, tells us about a boating accident occurring on the Thames, and again talking about uh, the sacrifice made by Mr. E. Garnish. The interesting thing about uh, G. Garnish is that, uh, tragic as it was, tragic as it seems, there never was a clergyman called G. Garnish. There never was an accident that occurred, occurred at Putney in, uh, Jan on January the 7th, 1885. The whole thing is fake news, 1885. Uh, it was actually, uh, uh, what seems to have happened was, uh, when you read the Aberdeen uh, Express and then you read the other newspapers that covered it, it becomes apparent they're using a single source, which presumably was a news agency. What seems to have happened was, the news agency picked it up, put it out, and all the newspapers papers uh, then published the story as being a true story, when in fact uh, it wasn't a true story, uh, and only one newspaper actually published a retraction to the story, and that was the, uh, the Mid-Surrey Gazette, uh, which uh, went on to say, a sensational and circumstantial account has appeared in several of our contemporaries of a collision between two boats on Wednesday at Putney, one of which was capsized, five persons thrown into the river and two drowned. Our contemporaries have been the victims of a hoax, and no such incident occurred anywhere near Putney. So as I say, uh, I, I just wanted to include him because
because I think it's a wonderful uh, example that fake news is uh, is not a modern thing, that it's been around <laughs> since the 1880s, and G. Garnish is a, is a complete example of that. What was interesting is that when Watts was researching, or Watts's lady was researching them, she picked up on the story, but never picked up on the retraction. And so it simply appeared in the press clippings that were sent to uh, to Watts, and he thought, oh yes, we'll, we'll, we'll include those. Uh, oh, I've gone the wrong, sorry, I've gone the wrong way now. But, uh, so actually, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll skip through a few here because I just want to give you the idea of some of them. This is Robert Wright, who was a, a police constable. This is an interesting story as well because uh, when you start reading the story, uh, you get heroism in the story, as you do with a lot of these cases, and there's also a lack of heroism as well. It was customary that when there was a fire in a building, uh, it was customary for the authorities to open the nearest pub so the firemen could slake their thirsts. Uh, and one of the reports that crops up time and time again in the press to do with Robert Wright's death is that several of the firemen were drunk uh, when they tried to rescue him from the flames and, uh, and had to be reprimanded for their drunken behaviour at the scene. And you do get this several times where people, uh, the, the individuals themselves, act heroically and then you get uh, some who act completely unheroically. There's a young lad who was drowned in the, uh, the River Lee, for example, who uh, several people who were bathing in the river simply stepped on him and got out of the river themselves. Uh, so I say, uh, it wasn't all heroism uh, at the time. Uh, Robert Wright, say, was a police constable. I introduced me as well because quite a few of the memorial, or several of the memorials remember police constables. Uh, several of them remember firemen. The one thing Watts wouldn't have for some reason, he wouldn't have lifeboat men uh, on his memorial. Uh, and we don't actually, uh, he, he just said that uh, he considered lifeboat men were doing it as part of their duty, which, uh, given that Robert Wright was a police constable, then uh, really seems to have shot himself in the foot uh, with that one. But I want to move on quickly, because I just want to, that's Robert Wright there, and that's him making his a supreme act of sacrifice. That's the house that he entered, it's the burning building, and that's how it was when it was burnt out. Uh, I won't go into too much detail about these, but this, this was on the what is now the Olympic Park, and there is a memorial there, which is the clenched hands, uh, or the joined hands. Uh, Nicholson was uh, the managing director of Nicholson's Brewery, uh, the gin distillers, uh, and this is Three Mills uh, down there. So he was actually manager of Three Mills, uh, and they just went down. They went down a well to a clearer well for the, uh, for extra water, uh, and the first one to went down suddenly fell off the ladder, and the others started going down to try and rescue him, and they started falling as well, and it was suddenly realized they were becoming overcome by fumes. They'd actually, the water had been stagnant for several years. When they actually put the, went down to te, uh, put the depth level down there, they actually broke the surface, and that sent noxious gases coming up, which killed everybody who went down into the well. Uh, this is the memorial to those men who died, uh, and you'll actually find this just outside, that's the Olympic Park, uh, or the, uh, you'll find it just outside the Olympic Park uh, if you make your way to Stratford. But I, I, this is this is the one I wanted to finish on uh, because this is this is a local one, and it, it's it's another interesting one for several reasons as well, and it would be interesting if I could get to it. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, it's to Solomon Gallerman, and uh, Solomon Gallerman, uh, his 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 family. Uh, in fact, it wasn't Gallerman. His family were Gelman, uh, as far as we can make out. Uh, the, mis the, the misinformation comes from, or the misnaming comes from the fact that his mother at the inquest spoke through an interpreter. They were Jewish immigrants uh, into the East End of London. And his mother spoke through an interpreter. And this is something I'm sure you're all aware, crops up time and time again in newspapers. Uh, that the uh, journalists in the, uh, who are listening at the inquest, they take things down phonetically. And so he became Gallerman, when in fact it's probably Gelman. And even that we're not certain on. Uh, but aged 11, when he dies of, in, of his injuries, September the 6th, 1901, after saving his little brother from being run over. Uh, in fact, what happened was they made their way, they, they lived in Cable Street, and they made their way to visit their grandmother in Clerkenwell. And they were crossing Commercial Street, they were crossing over Commercial Street, uh, and his younger brother Isaac suddenly slipped on the wet cobbles. They'd just been freshly washed. And Isaac slipped over. And at that moment, uh, a large carriage came round the corner. And Isaac panicked. He tried to get up. But because he was panicking, he kept slipping over. And Solomon, without giving the second thought, raced across, grabbed hold of Isaac, and threw him out of the way of the, of the carriage. And... Uh, uh, the, 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 the carriage hit Solomon and it dragged him along Commercial Street. Uh, crowds followed and they tried to lift the carriage off him, which they did. And then a police officer took Isaac back home to their mother to tell him that, his, uh, that her youngest son was now in hospital. The crowd had actually taken Solomon down to the London hospital. And so she went to see uh, Solomon and she went in and the doctors told her there was nothing she, they could do for Solomon, that Solomon was going to die. And so she went and sat with him and she took hold of his hand. 
gone the wrong way. Uh, she took hold of his hand, and at which point he opened his eyes, and he said to her, Mother, did they bring my brother home? I saved him, but I could not save myself. Now, with that, he, he said that the newspaper accounts say he put himself up on his elbows, kissed her cheek, fell back on the bed, and died, which does sound uh, rather dramatic. Uh, but Watts couldn't fit the entire quote onto the plaque, and so that's why the quote there is, Mother, I saved him, but I could not save myself. And I say that, that was the case of Solomon Gallimon uh, on Commercial Street. Uh, but typical of the, uh, the idea of the everyday hero. And this is one of the uh, important points that, uh, that we start to get towards the end of the 19th century. And that is that ordinary people, uh, and in, no matter what uh, avenue of life they're in, can actually take on the extraordinary. And you start to get inspired by this from about 18, uh, early 1880s onwards. You start to get uh, this appearance of people who think they can do more. Uh, I would say probably the most notable manifestation of this is in the Jack the Ripper investigation where you get the vigilance patrols are going out at night and thinking they can succeed where the police are failing. Uh, and then, of course, this then leads the press reporting on the vigilance committees and the vigilance patrols, and you start to get then the likes of the amateur detectives are going out into the streets uh, thinking that they can catch Jack the Ripper. Uh, and as a result of this, we're getting that age where everybody uh, sees themselves or can become a hero. And as I say, it's, uh, it was manifest in newspaper reports, picked up and expounded by George Frederick Watts, who really uh, went to it. The sad thing is that he never really got to see much of his memorial. Uh, he was too sick when the memorial was actually unveiled on the 30th of July, 1900. Uh, Watts was actually too sick to uh, attend the unveiling, uh, and it was actually his wife Mary who went uh, and helped with the unveiling. Watts would then die in 1904, and his wife, his widow Mary then, she continued putting the, uh, the putting them up, well, she was in charge of what would go on the wall, and this continued through to her death in 1930 and then when she died, uh, the uh, memorial was effectively uh, abandoned as far as new memorials go. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was handed over to, for keeping to the Diocese of London. And they maintained it, but they didn't do much else about it. And uh, I don't know what I've done there. Uh, they maintained it, but they didn't do much else about it. And as a consequence, uh, there is room. I wanted to show you actually a, a slide, but I don't know if I can go back to it. Uh, there is room. Uh, on that wall for 120 plaques and memorials to heroic self-sacrifice. There are currently uh, 52 of them that commemorate 64 acts of heroic self-sacrifice that you'll find on the wall. Uh, but it, it is such a wonderful memorial and it remembers a time where just ordinary everyday people could be heroes just for one day. And I would urge anyone who hasn't been there uh, and I'm, I'm, I was only joking, John, by the way. I'm, I'm, don't, 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 don't miss John's talk. Uh, but I would urge anyone who's not been there uh, to take the opportunity to go over and have a look at Postman's Park. I've actually put on the seats. You should have a, a little leaflet with the web, my website on it. And on the website, at the very top of the website, I've got a section called London Guide. And if you click on London Guide, it's divided into three sections. And one section is Secret London. And if you click on the Secret London section, uh, you'll find it's divided into districts of London. If you click on the City of London, one of those is Postman's Park, and on that website I've actually got uh, 60, 68 pages uh, of all the newspaper accounts of every one of those people who's remembered uh, in Postman's Park, so you can actually uh, read about them, read their inquests, see how some of them were seen as heroes at the time, some of them most emphatically were not, but as I say, it was an inspired, uh, inspired thing by uh, George Frederick Watts, and it's something that really does inspire us today, and Contrary to the fact that uh, even if it's raining, uh, what's his intention was that we would have a covered passageway or a covered uh, uh, area there so you could go and sit in it, have your sandwiches at lunch, be sheltered from the rain, read every one of those plaques or as many as you want and be inspired by the individual acts of courage. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the age of the heroic, um, uh, <laughs> the, the, the age of the humble hero in the age of Jack the Ripper. So I'd like to thank you for listening to me. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we've got questions now, so uh, if anyone wants to ask any questions, please uh, feel free to do so. Richard, what was that last, what was the date of that last young man where his girlfriend paid to have him added? He was two it, well. He died in two thousand and seven, uh, but the memorial went up in two thousand and nine, uh, and it was Lee Pitt. It is. It's a very poignant story, actually, Lee Pitt. Uh, and every year, it was in two thousand and seven. He died. He, he jumped in. A, a little boy fell into the lock at uh, Thamesmead, 
and Leapit was had a flat on Thameslead, and he just raced down, dived in, and he grabbed the boy and pulled him up. Uh, but the rescuers then put a hose pipe down, which he tied around the boy, and the boy was pulled to safety. But what then happened was that uh, when they put the hose pipe back down to Leapit, the waters were rising, and because of his extra weight, and because the hose pipe was wet, he slipped off, and he fell into the lock, and a, a police constable, Ken Chow, actually arrived on the scene at that moment, and he dived in, and he managed to grab Leapit and pull him back to the surface, but then the waters pulled him back away from him. He had to let go of him, and he was just drowned. Uh, and say, at the time, he'd worked for Merrill Lynch, uh, which it's now Bank of America Merrill Lynch, but at the time it was Merrill Lynch, and their offices overlook Postman's Park, and uh, it was from those offices. Uh, his fiance Hannah Shah, and a workmate of his, went to uh, Merrill Lynch and said, look, can we do something? And they approached the Diocese of London and said, look, can we have another plaque? Uh, the difficulty was, it had to be in the same style as the other plaques. That, that was the, the difficulty. But it was actually, and they were done by Royal Dalton over in Lambeth, or the later ones were. The early ones were done by William de Morgan, uh, but later ones Royal Dalton. And the, the factory at Royal Dalton had closed down, so they had to find someone who could do a plaque that was, uh, was, it was in the same style. And uh, as a consequence, but she still to this day, every June, he, he, his anniversary is in June, and every June she takes a single red rose and she lays it underneath his plaque in Postman's Park, and that's still that she still does that each year today. <coughs> does that answer your question? I say that because it's a fellow blue badge guide. We have, we have to we have to say that. <laughs> any any other questions? No, fantastic. So. Uh, if anybody wants to save Philip's career, um, be a heroic hero, <laughs> hero in that respect, uh, please feel free to do so. But now, uh, here, here, here comes John, and uh, enjoy his talk. Ah, oh, it's marvellous. I love that, Richard. Thank you. I could have listened to that for the rest of the day, really. Just do that. Do you do that? Yeah, do. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Richard Jones speaking at the 2017 East End Conference. The blog that Richard mentions he wrote on the plaques at the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, I've linked to in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to go there for an incredible amount of information on the memorial. I've also uploaded Richard's slideshow, as well as an enhanced podcast with the slides embedded in the podcast audio, and those are available on this episode's homepage on casebook.org. I'd like to thank Richard Jones for his talk and slides, as well as Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, and Andrew Firth for making this and all of the presentations we are releasing possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel members in Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>